Welcome to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and in this episode, we head off in search of someone who actually does know what they're talking about. Today I'm talking to Dr Anna Alexandrova, Reader in Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge and Principal Investigator of the Expertise Under Pressure Group at the Centre for Humanities and Social Change at CRASH. She's an expert on experts then, but her latest research on well-being shows that including the real lived experiences of people far outside academia is the smartest thing to do. In these times of crisis and uncertainty, many of us have been searching frantically for the grown-ups in the room. But should we even trust someone who claims to have all the answers? Dr. Alexandrova, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. My pleasure. Your group that you're running at Crash is known as Expertise Under Pressure, which is really interesting because expertise suggests certainty and under pressure suggests a bit of tension. Can you tell me what you mean by those two terms? The project was born when uh, several people across the university came together with uh, the same interest, the interest of understanding why in some situations we rely on experts even when we know that they're standing on very thin ice and uh, their advice and their predictions and their knowledge is extremely fragile. Uh, That is what we mean by expertise and that is what we mean by pressure. Pressure can come from uh, many different sources. Sometimes uh, decisions have to be made very, very quickly. The pressure then is temporal. The expert's dilemma is to uh, just say something as good and credible as possible given the circumstances, given the pressure of the clock. Sometimes pressure is different. The stakes are very high, the social stakes, so you might have a little bit more time to make your decision. But depending on your decision, you know, there'll be enormous big changes in society. Sometimes pressure is also moral because as an expert, you're asked to make a judgment that isn't just empirical, that isn't just about what is the case or what will be the case, but rather also relies on value judgments. So you also have to make assumptions about what is good for people, what is valuable, what is right, what is just, or even what is beautiful. And these are all different points of pressure. We came together, Emily So, Rob Doubleday, Mike Kenny, and I initially, all with different uh, case studies. And of course, if we think about the last 18 months, when experts all over the globe have been under pressure and being asked in real time to come up with answers to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Clearly, this is a real pinch point in terms of thinking about these topics. But can you tell me the other kinds of things your group is interested in? 
We conceived this project initially in 2017 when uh, we had luxury to think about other uh, expertises under pressure. We were interested in uh, rapid decisions under risk when the disaster happens. My colleague Emily So is uh, an architect and engineer that advises government on earthquakes. We were interested in why is it that so many economists uh, in- invested advice uh, into promoting cities over rural areas, uh, thereby arguably contributing to a lot of regional inequality and uh, splitting of societies. So that was Mike Kenny's uh, project. And finally, we were also interested, myself personally, in a general idea that social scientists have often entertained that laws govern development of societies. And we put together uh, this project with participation of uh, Center for uh, Science and Policy, uh, because uh, Rob Doubleday is such a great connector of policymakers with scientists, and that was uh, the perfect team. And then when COVID struck, uh, of course, we realized that never was expertise under more pressure than now. And we developed several other case studies. So we're now trying to understand the fortunes and the misfortunes and the rise and the fall of certain advisory groups and certain expert groups that were uh, more and less influential at the different stages in the pandemic and the disciplinary fights and their struggle for legitimacy and transparency. Just this week, as we're sitting here talking, Professor Chris Whitty, who, of course, is England's chief medical officer and has been a very public face of the uh, government's COVID response, um, his phrase, we all know, next slide, please, during those briefings is, is printed everywhere. It's become a sort of national catchphrase. But he's been publicly accosted in, in a park this week by ordinary citizens saying, you know, we don't agree with your view of the science. We don't agree with lockdown. When you see that kind of response to expertise, how does that make you feel? Well, many people nowadays talk about a crisis of expertise, and that what that means is a, a growing uh, sense that experts have overplayed their hands in the past. Famous phrase by Michael Gove, this country has had enough of experts. And it's important to look at this phenomenon uh, you know, in context. It isn't the first time that experts have been seen as controversial. And there are lots and lots of reasons for why different claims to expertise attract different kinds of animosity or respect, on the other hand. Uh, Sometimes these claims are incredibly uncertain and the expert might be saying it in such an authoritative environment that it still becomes a law of the land. And sometimes uh, the expert needs to make a judgment trading off different values. Uh, For example, values uh, of uh, health versus livelihood. And uh, it isn't clear that those big judgments are always the experts to make. How do you define an expert? What allows somebody to call themselves an expert or be seen as an expert? It's a very important question because different disciplines will give different uh, definitions of it. As a philosopher, I'm tempted to resort to purely 
whoever knows more than others is an expert, but a sociologist will tell you how important to the claims of expertise are the complex uh, institutional and social networks that allow you to communicate your claims, to defend them, and to have a certain standing. So in our project, we hope to incorporate all of these. Another area of pressure that particularly scientific experts are facing at the moment, is that it's not enough to do science in a vacuum anymore. And there's a pressure almost to do the most attention-grabbing science that can be easily translated to public policy. How do you see that pressure translating back into the work that experts actually do in the scientific field? I think both are needed. It would be a great shame if uh, publicly funded science did not try to speak to significant issues uh, to the community that is funding it. There would be something unjust about it and something impractical. In my own research, I observe uh, this phenomenon again and again uh, with the sciences of well-being. It would be a great tragedy if the scientists were not interested in what makes communities flourish in the good and positive aspects of communal living or individual living. But when government has well-being agenda uh, and when it has, uh, you know, centers that are supposed to uh, promote this, then uh, the experts incentive is to produce bits of digestible uh, material and, you know, simple claims such as Poverty is actually less important for, for well-being than mental health. This is actually a claim that some economists are making here, and that's a fantastic oversimplification brought about precisely by the pressure to uh, plug in. if we could just walk back a minute I'm intrigued to know how do you become an expert on expertise what started you on this path the narrative that seems inescapable to me for why I'm so interested in claims of expertise especially expertise about the social world is my own personal story of growing up and coming of age just as Soviet Union was collapsing. So I grew up in a provincial town in southern Russia called Krasnodar, which is a Soviet breadbasket, very comfortable, very warm. And I had an idyllic Soviet childhood of adults who had a lot of time for me, teachers who were loving and caring, as well as committed, and all sorts of wonderful provisions, such as summer pioneer camps, And what was not so idyllic uh, were the little signs that I saw on the adult side. So lots of kitchen conversations about the painful revelations that were coming, uh, about what Soviet Union was really like. It was really interesting watching my parents finding out how much of what they learned throughout their life were lies and uh, how much tyranny there was. And then lots of things were starting to fall into place. And... There were so many deep and painful discussions about who we were and, you know, 
grandmothers wanting to insist that there was something good about the Soviet Union and uh, me as a teenager growing up wanting to kind of stick it in her face, uh, you know, all the lies that she's lived through. Uh, there were a lot of dramatic personal and political points. I brought some photos to show you. This is me as a young child in uh, this wonderful May Day demo that I used to go with my dad. I'm surrounded by balloons and flowers and it's definitely a party because that's also happens to be my birthday so we're on the way back home where there's going to be a wonderful meal and uh, and lots of love from the adults in my life how old are you there in that uh, picture i must be nine or ten and uh, the next photo you see is very very different you know this is me probably age 16 or 15 and uh, of course, everyone transforms between age 10 and 15. But this is a bigger transformation because you see, I have a perm. Yes. And I have a, a denim shirt. And the, the most un-Soviet of looks is uh, you can imagine. And I have a big, super confident or at least confidence projecting smile on my face, <laughs> trying to look very Western and very together. The difference between... These two photos of mine are, of course, the enormous transformations that Soviet Union and then Russia is going through. So the next photos I have for you are what a Soviet city would look like in the early 90s when people would just bring stuff on the street and sell because the pensions weren't being paid. That's a kind of informal street market, people laying things out on blankets and sheets in the public square to say, would anybody like anything and trying to make ends meet? Or would anybody like a cigarette one by one? Or would anybody like the uh, complete works of Lenin because we no longer need it? So that's the sort of things that you could see on this markets. And you could see enormous amount of both insecurity and pain on the adult side. But you could also see you know, huge optimism and excitement about where we're going and how we could have a completely different life and how we could be completely different people. We no longer have to be Soviet. So at that moment, there was a kind of power vacuum as you moved between one set of beliefs to another set of beliefs. Did you notice that there was a hunt for experts and that none were forthcoming in this period of flux? That's exactly how I felt. Uh, not only power vacuum, but knowledge vacuum. And my strong, distinct memory is all these faces on TV that were saying things and sounding confident. And whatever it is they were saying, right? Sometimes it was about the new parliament that was getting elected. Sometimes it was about uh, economy. Sometimes it was about uh, how you had to charge your water with uh, psychic energy to drink it. So whatever it is they were saying, they were saying it very confidently. And yet nobody believed. Or sometimes we did believe. So that experience of enormous uncertainty and enormous influx of uh, new ideas that was uh, both exciting and unnerving, you know, suddenly all these uh, American missionaries arriving and a lot of my school friends going full-on Christian or suddenly, you know, the Church of Scientology uh, setting out camp in my hometown. And of course, probably the biggest and the most relevant type of expertise that then informed my later interests is the economists with uh, Western education arriving right to Moscow, though I obviously wasn't there. 
I read about it later, in saying that uh, in order to solve Russia's uh, enormous budget problems, enormous production and distribution problems, you just have to suddenly liberalize the economy and you have to do what is called uh, the shock therapy. And those economists were fantastically sincere and talented and intelligent, and they were jetting around the world, advising different governments. And uh, sometimes it worked, their advice, and why wouldn't it work in Russia? And yet it didn't. It uh, didn't work very, very painfully. And uh, we're seeing the repercussions of it up until now, because for a lot of Russians in the 90s were probably the most painful and the most humiliating years that they have experienced and the most disorienting ones. Having said that, for my personality and the personality of my parents, that fit perfectly. I mean, I was just elated and excited about all the new things that I could learn and all the new things that I could discover. If only I could get to the proper education, to the proper books, if only I could learn enough. So I had enormous amount of energy and enthusiasm. And by the time I got to London School of Economics, age 21, I just saw this field of study called philosophy of social science. And the idea that there could be philosophy and a social science mixed together sounded fantastic. I later discovered that it was a field precisely that asked what should be our expectations about expertise about the social and whether that those expectations should be similar to the sort of expectations we bring to expertise about the natural world or our bodies or whether it should be a different expectation. And I fell in love with this field and to be honest, I never did anything since. <laughs> And it's a field that seems to really suit you because it's that mix of psychology and lived experience, economics, sociology, geography, and you've moved a lot. I know you've also lived in America and anthropology. And, and so having had lived experience of a period of expertise, vacuum and flux, and then developed your own expertise through conventional study, you must be very well placed to tie all those threads together. Or at least it feels like I am. Uh, ever since my first uh, meeting with this field, I um, finished a PhD at the University of California, San Diego, where I examined ways in which uh, game theorists promised to transform distribution of goods, such as the electromagnetic spectrum, and using extremely abstract mathematical models. So I examined whether or not their claims of expertise were warranted or whether they were exaggerated. And then I moved on from this field to another really controversial uh, subject of expertise, and that is uh, claims of well-being. Let's pick up on that because your book, A Philosophy for the Science of Wellbeing, came out in 2017 uh, from Oxford University Press and the paperback edition is coming out right now as I, I'm speaking to you. In the book, you describe yourself as optimistically cautious about the future of wellbeing studies. Is that still true? Are you still feeling optimistically cautious about well-being or in the wake of the pressure that's been put on well-being as an idea in the last 18 months with COVID, has your view shifted a little bit? 
I am still extremely optimistic about the possibility of knowing about uh, human flourishing. And I'm cautious about uh, the possibility of uh, attaining it using the methods of science. So let me explain that. The very idea that well-being should be studied by any methods necessary seems to me completely warranted and completely correct. So when in the last 30 years it became an object of science for psychologists and economists, I thought that was a a very, very good development because they brought to the study of well-being a possibility of administering uh, surveys and then analyzing those data and understanding what are the big drivers of well-being. At the same time, I now see and this is the more pessimistic bit, that there has been a certain disciplinary capture when uh, only a small number of methods are allowed to understand well-being. So a lot of economists nowadays think that uh, well-being is just reported well-being on very simple surveys. And if we just have enough of those data and understand how to calculate uh, you know, the coefficient that housing has for that simple quantity of life satisfaction, then that's all there is to knowledge of well-being. I think that's very impoverished and really shallow as a, as a way of studying well-being. So I would like to see a well-being science that's much more mixed uh, in terms of methods and in terms of commitments. I would like uh, for there to be well-being science that uses uh, qualitative methods and ethnographic and that involves people and stakeholders themselves into the, the measurement and the construction of measures and the analysis of data. That's quite a radical idea, really, isn't it? Considering how scientific and philosophical studies are normally carried out, this idea that, you know, perhaps we might be experts in our own well-being. We, the people, might have a part to play uh, in this conversation. And until now, you say experts have been doing well-being to people. What's been the result of that? So I'm very excited about this new work that I'm carrying out with colleagues at the Bennett Institute for Public Policy, Diane Coyle and Mark Fabian and others. We are trying to figure out what it would be like, what would well-being public policy and well-being science be like if it really did bring people into the process uh, rather than doing well-being to people. With Mark Fabian, we are exploring ways of involving lived experts into production of new well-being concepts and new measures. Uh, We had um, just a very lucky opportunity to work with a national poverty charity called Turn to Us. And Turn to Us has a lot of experience of what they call co-production. That means when they involve lived experts that they're serving into both the development of their services and development of their conceptions of what they're aiming at. So with us, they wanted to co-produce a concept of thriving and a framework of what thriving is when you are under sudden financial pressure. 
which is the people that uh, turn to us serves. And uh, that was a brilliant experience, but also a very unusual experience. I'm very proud to have participated in it, and I'm uh, excited to write about this. We were in the room many, many times, well, in virtual room often, with both social workers and the charity workers that are distributing funds, as well as lived experts, people who have had the experience of extreme financial fall, together with our knowledge of well-being theories and through long and extremely well-chaired conversations we constructed an account of thriving that I think stands as a real alternative to uh, measures that economists and psychologists like to use, such as life satisfaction. Yes, yeah, so this goes beyond me, for example, ticking a box, one to ten, how satisfied do you feel with your life in general right now? And I have to choose one of those numbers and ticket and then that all gets fed into a big data set and then everyone's like, oh, well, the people in Cambridge feel this about this and that. And actually, you're talking about a process of conversation and looping back and interviewing and and various different types of expert having equal weight in the room. So somebody, an ordinary person who's experienced severe financial hardship out of the blue, has as much weight in the conversation as you coming with your PhD and your 20 years of academic knowledge. How did that put your own methods, your own beliefs under pressure? That is exactly right. I do think our expertise is equal, you know, at different levels of analysis, but nevertheless about the same thing. So they know what it is like to do your best when life turns really harsh and they are fantastically reflexive about it and they're willing to be very theoretical. And uh, I know all the moves and turns and concepts that philosophers and psychologists have developed to describe these experiences at a different level. And when we do bring together and unveil our uh, theory of thriving, uh, we shall be equal co-authors on the outputs and we shall get equal credit, as I think is right, because if expertise is ever going to be again, trusted and respected, and if it is ever going to, again, have the standing that commands respect, I think it's going to have to be a very distributed expertise. So some of the uh, trends that the Expertise Under Pressure project and elsewhere are very excited about is the trends of Uh, public participation in science and even further citizen science. So those are uh, cases when academics uh, and research scientists together with members of the public construct uh, research projects and carry out research projects that can really challenge uh, existing consensus. And then, uh, most importantly, uh, the participants are not just subjects in experiments, they are also knowledge makers. How does that work in practice? So you, for example, if you were to meet for the first time, how do you all go around the table and introduce yourselves? How do you set out the parameters? Do you find that people who've never been invited to this kind of discussion before, do they feel quite nervous or do they feel thrilled to be asked? And how long does it take for the conversation to really start flowing productively? It takes a lot of really thoughtful and wise chairing that ensures equality 
and respect for all. And on the part of academics, as everyone else, it takes a different kind of labor. You know, it takes emotional labor, which I don't think we often apply in the context of our academic research. You know, I do a lot of emotional labor, as I'm sure you do too, um, as a mother, as a teacher, as a colleague, when I put people at ease, when I instill to students the trust that they can do it. But this was a new experience for me because uh, co-production or citizen science also takes emotional labor at the level of research when uh, you actually have to put people at ease and make with their ideas the very best you can. So, you know, when someone is uh, perhaps being very uncertain or insecure or unconfident about the view that they're expressing, but you know that the view they're expressing is also, you know, Kant's view, then then you could just bring it together. And you, you need to do things that we're not trained to do. And I was uh, really honored at being able to develop that skill. And I think uh, if we're going to have a science of well-being that uh, is genuinely pluralist and uh, covers diverse ground and doesn't put all of our eggs in a single methodological basket and kind of spreads the risk and respects the diversity and the complexity of the phenomenon, then we're going to have to develop very many different kinds of knowing. And I think perhaps traditional approach to psychology and economics of well-being just doesn't involve enough emotional labor. Is that going to change how you approach the rest of your academic career then? Has working with Turn to Us and ordinary citizens changed the way you want to do work in future? Uh, Yes. I would like to develop a library of different modes of knowing the social. I would like to understand and respect that there are different ways of developing expertise and different things that you can be expert about. And of course, the greatest challenge then for a decision maker, whether in uh, situations of policy or in personal life, is how to combine different forms of expertise. But I think the first step is to recognize the plurality. we look back to the idea of time what we the public seem to expect particularly in times of crisis is a very confident expert and you suggest I think in in one of your works that a more realistic expectation would be an anguished expert an expert that worries about have I covered all the bases have I talked to everybody necessary can I say that with certainty What are the potential repercussions, if I say this, on the real and ordinary lives of people? And that anguished expert status takes time. It takes time to build up and it also might be less successful in getting its 
voice heard because we need confident experts, or we think we do. Can you unpack a little bit of that for me? Yes, the idea of an anguished expert is the idea that some of my colleagues on the Expertise Under Pressure project are developing and uncovering through uh, many interviews with uh, experts. So this is a work by Hannah Baker, Cleo Chassonnery-Zaigouche and uh, Federico Brandmeier. It was very important to them to interview many experts and then to try and understand what expertise is like from uh, the point of view of the advice giver. And in the spirit of uh, not just having perspective on expertise as it arises, you know, from TV or from uh, books, um, we are trying to show that an expert that might appear to be fantastically confident and firm might also be an anguished expert inside. And that's right. Like an ang- anguished expert is not an expert that can't make up their minds. No, in, in the end, they come and say what needs to be said. But that doesn't mean that they have not dealt with uh, painful dilemmas inside. Uh, How do I handle uncertainty? What if that uncertainty has very high costs? Do I make a judgment about, you know, what matters more myself? Do I try to outsource it to someone else? If I outsource it to someone else, then it might be made worse than me. They might as well do it. So these are the sorts of complex calculations and decisions that an expert goes through. And I want to hope that that is entirely compatible with in the public sphere coming out and just saying what you think is right because you have gone through that process already. Although of course saying what one thinks is right in a public sphere increasingly now is a really fraught thing to do isn't it? You know we've got trolls, we've got instant clapback on social media. I mean do you think expertise is under pressure in the way of I must weigh my words even more carefully, although many people don't, but is the climate of our listening making that kind of thoughtful expertise really difficult? Uh, Fantastically difficult. The expert that gets the most Twitter followers, that gets the most clicks, uh, is an expert that perhaps puts things most dramatically or most colourfully and manages to create out of science and entertainment as, you know, some of the news networks created entertainment out of news. It's the same process. That is, of course, not going to be the, the sort of expertise that necessarily warrants respect and credibility. I mean, that's why we think it is uh, so important to have really solid institutions at national and local level where expert judgment is much more equalized. Uh, so these kind of co-production exercises is uh, a much better way of amalgamating expertise than uh, Twitter. Can I ask you, Dr. Alexandrova, what would you say at this point in your career you are an expert on in personal terms 
or in academic terms? What knowledge do you feel you know for sure? Well, as a mother, I know how to handle enormous different pressures on me, right? I know how to stay cool under pressure. And when I explode, I know that it's safe to explode somewhere. So I have a lot of expertise uh, in that area. As a scholar, my biggest expertise that I'm proud of is to be able to see past other claims of expertise. Charismatic sponsors of certain research, behavioral economics or nudges or any other new thing or big data, whatever it is, they always have the same tropes. Uh, tropes for establishing that they know what they're doing, you know, putting forward very classic and compelling narratives, uh, highlighting certain especially exciting findings, and then also constructing these origin stories about we used to do things this way, now we do things that way. I mean, this just goes over and over and over again. And every time there is a new fashionable field, in uh, social science, be it uh, positive psychology, be it behavioral economics, be it big data, be it uh, empirical turn, ontological turn, material turn, any kind of uh, turn, I do have expertise to see past people's attempts to package knowledge in simpler way than it really is. So the 12-year-old you, the 13-year-old you pops into your head and and you're like, hang on a minute, I've seen this before and it might be a bit dodgy. I think that's where it comes from. Thank you. When we spoke on the phone, you talked about your experience of living in many different countries as being something you knew for sure, as being very central, this experience of migration, immigration. Would you like to say any more about that? I am an immigrant first and foremost. I left Russia at 18, but then I never left it. I'm still a Russian citizen and uh, I have enormous amount of affective commitment to what happens in Russia and the people that I know there. I am also you know, a very thankful resident of the United States for 11 years. Uh, that was the time when I arrived and I got the education that I was craving for and a big start in life from these you know, incredible teachers I had at uh, University of California, San Diego, and then colleagues in St. Louis, Missouri. And I am now a very committed citizen of uh, this country, having been here for another uh, 10 years. However, the identity of an immigrant will never leave. Uh, identity of an immigrant is a one where... You're permanently a little bit of an outsider, but you kind of are working very hard to get to know the new place. So you are never cynical and you're never too removed. You know, you never are an island. So, you know, after a few years, I have started following British news and I was delighted to vote for the first time and never, ever missed the the opportunity to vote. And I would say, however, that... uh, As a scholar, immigration is probably an important dimension for me because I migrate from disciplines and although I'm very much a philosopher, I do appreciate my stays in social sciences, very many different social sciences regularly. So in a way, the fact that you are both an insider and an outsider all the time, 
that seems to me, given what you've said today, actually the ideal standpoint to judge expertise and to push expertise forward. You, you actually have one foot in the centre of things and also an outsider's point of view. Well, I like to think so. However, important not to exaggerate that, right? I want to understand what expertise looks like when you have no power at all, which at this point I'm not. And I want to understand what should be the expectations of expertise about the social that we convey to children at school, for example, and what sort of standards we should be holding people that call themselves experts. I'd like to understand better how, depending on whether they are talking to their Twitter audience or to school children or on TV, they should be using uh, different standards and they should be perhaps respecting different values. So there's plenty more work to do. There certainly is. Thank you very much, Dr. Anna Alexandrova, for talking to us today on Thoughtlines. It's been a real delight to talk to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thoughtlines is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box. Thank you.